Thank you, Joanne. Uh, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the New Testament to the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 968. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, we're only going to read one verse tonight, and that is verse 9. We finished up uh, our study of 1 Thessalonians uh, a couple of weeks ago, and um, not really sure what to do next, and so I want to I look at a verse of, of the Bible that is um, really foundational for us for two reasons. Number one, it's, um, it's foundational for understanding what Christianity is all about. If, if someone came to you and, and said, hey, I hear you're a Christian, what, what, what do you believe? Uh, there's a lot of verses you could take them to, but this is one of them. Uh, this is a, a very, I think, helpful explanation for what is at the very center of the Christian faith. And so, first of all, this is foundational for our understanding of Christianity. Secondly, it's also under, uh, foundational for our comfort. Uh, some of you might wrestle with comfort. Some of you might wrestle with um, assurance. I, I mentioned this morning that, that there are a lot of times when we think um, we've got to do something. We've got we to contribute something. There, you've heard the saying, there is no free lunch. Uh, Christianity can't be true. It can't be this good. Uh, and so it's, it's helpful, again, to, even though it's just one verse, to, to look at what the truth of the gospel really is. And so 2 Corinthians 8, uh, just reading one verse, verse 9. Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Krakatoa. Do you know what Krakatoa is? Krakatoa is a small volcanic island in Indonesia. 140 years ago today, it exploded. And it was among the most violent volcanic events in all of recorded history. It, it had an eruption, get this, its eruption was 13,000 times more powerful than the atomic bomb that was dropped during World War II. 13,000 times more powerful than the atomic bomb. It was a powerful explosion. It killed almost 40,000 people. Now that was a horrible natural disaster. But I'm going to guess that, that no one in this room, none of your families, was affected by Krakatoa exploding. It was a moment in history. It was a devastating event. But it was something that was outside of us, right? It was something that is really unrelated to us. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh and he came to this earth. And for many people, that's all it is. If they even believe it to be true, that's all it is, just a historical event. Doesn't really relate to me, doesn't really affect me. 2,000 years ago, there was this guy, Jesus, who died on a Roman cross. But it doesn't really have any effect on my life. 
In other words, they, they don't really view Jesus coming to this earth any differently than they would view Krakatoa. Now, I know that's not true for you sitting in this room tonight. As Christians, the, the incarnation of Jesus is of the greatest significance and the greatest importance. But I wonder tonight if it's something that, that maybe we take for granted. We, we celebrate it every, every December. We celebrate during Advent season what we call the incarnation, that, that Jesus took on a truly human nature and he came to this earth. And I think, if, if you're like me, you, you have become so familiar with this and it's such a part of what we believe that it might be easy for us to forget the wonder of it all. To forget uh, just how amazing and incredible it is that, that Jesus would come to this earth and he would die for us. It's amazing for two reasons. First of all, it's amazing that, that Jesus would take on human flesh. The eternal Son of God. The one, John 1 says, through whom everything was created. The one, Hebrews 1 says, who sustains everything. That, that he would take on this skin and bones and blood. And he would shed his blood for us. And, and secondly, it's also amazing that, that Jesus would do this to save unworthy sinners like us. That he would give his life so that we would live. Tonight we're going to focus on just one verse. And, and we might be tempted to think, really, just one verse? I mean, how much really is there in, in one verse? Many years ago, uh, St. Augustine, who was a pastor, theologian who lived over 1,500 years ago. St. Augustine said this about the Gospel of John. He said, the Gospel of John is shallow enough for a child to wade in, but it's deep enough for an elephant to swim in. His point was, it, it doesn't matter your age, it doesn't matter where you're at in the Christian life. You can always learn something from John's Gospel. And I think Augustine could just as easily have said that about this one verse. It's simple enough for a child to understand what Paul is saying, but it's deep enough that we could really spend an eternity plumbing the depths of this one single verse. Now the context of, of this passage is that in the first century, many Christians were, were facing extreme poverty. You remember what I told you when we went through 1 Thessalonians, that when you became a Christian in that day, you, you would often lose your job. You, you might even have your property taken away from you. Your family might disown you. And so there were many Christians who were suffering extreme poverty. They, they were rejected socially, economically. They, they were thrown out of their families. They lost their employment and, and Paul here is specifically referencing the extreme poverty of Christians living in Jerusalem. And, and because of this, Paul, he, he loved people, he loved God's people. He, he organized a financial collection for these believers in order to help them in the midst of their poverty. And if you look back at the first verse of this chapter, the, the Macedonian churches had responded very generously to this 
this need. They had given in a, in a gracious, superabounding way. They were very, very generous. And, and now Paul wants to encourage the church in Corinth to also consider giving to these Christians in Jerusalem, and he's going to use the Macedonians as an example to follow. In other words, let me, let me encourage you, Corinthians, to, to give as the, as the Macedonians gave. Give cheerfully. Give generously. But Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with the, the Macedonians. He's going to go on and he's going to give them the greatest encouragement by pointing them to Jesus. And this is what we often find in Scripture, that when the, the authors of Scripture want to encourage us and, and motivate us and move us, they point us to Christ. Philippians 2 is an example. When, when Paul says, think of others as more important than yourselves, he, he then goes on and gives us the example of Jesus. And that's what he does here. And he starts in verse 9 and he says, notice, for you know, for you know. I'm telling you something, Corinthians, that you already know. You already know about Jesus. You already know what he's done. I mean, you can't be a Christian and not know about the work of Jesus, right? But it's something that we often need to be reminded of. It's something that we often need to hear again and again and again. This idea that, that we move past the gospel is found nowhere in Scripture. This idea of, yeah, we, we know that. Please give us something else is not found in the Bible. We need to be reminded of things. Men, sometimes we need to be reminded to take out the trash. We, we know that it has to go out. We, we know that we can't just keep throwing garbage into the container over and over until it spills out and rots on the floor. We know it has to be taken out, but we forget. We get busy with other things, and so we have to be reminded. Paul says, I want to remind you about Jesus. I, I, I know you, and I know that you know the gospel, and I know that you hear the gospel every Sunday. You, you know about the, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, but, but we so easily can forget it. We so easily can take it for granted, and we have to be reminded. Paul says, for you know and it's not, listen, it's not just talking about head knowledge. Paul's not just saying, you, you know the facts of the gospel so that you can impress your friends or so that you can get through catechism class. He says, for you know. That word know speaks of, a, of an experiential knowledge, something that, that is deep within you. In other words, these Christians to whom Paul is writing had, had personally known and experienced God's grace to them in Jesus. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know you have experienced the wonderful reality of what God has done for you. I could say the same thing to you tonight, right? You know what God has done for you. You know how he's taken you out of darkness into light. You know how he's given you life. You know how he's given you the gift of faith. You know that he's forgiven your sins. You know that he's given you eternal life. We have the same experiential knowledge. And, and Paul says it's this knowledge of God's grace that is to move us to show grace to others. Listen, if the, if the gospel doesn't affect our lives, what good is it? What use is it? You, you can't 
as a Christian know and experience God's grace and not want to show grace to others. You can't really be a Christian and, and not want to help those in need or come alongside those who are suffering because we, we know what the Lord has done for us and we want to serve and help others. And now Paul is going to go on. He's going to say, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus and he's going to say three things that we want to look at tonight. First of all, he's going to talk about the riches of Jesus. Then he's going to talk about the poverty of Jesus. And then he's going to talk about the riches of the believer. Children, when you hear that someone is rich, and this is not just children, this is all of us, you hear that someone is rich, the first thing you think of is that this is a person who has a lot of money. Maybe they're a millionaire, maybe they're a billionaire. According to Forbes, the richest person on the planet right now is Elon Musk. He has a, a, apparently a net worth of $235 billion, with a B, billion dollars. It's a lot of guacamole, Right? $235 billion. But what does Paul mean when he says that Jesus is rich? It means two things. First of all, Jesus is rich in his being. In other words, Jesus Christ is himself eternal God. We confess in the Nicene Creed that Jesus is very God of very God. John 1.1 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, he's talking about Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Titus 2.13 says that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.8 says this about Jesus, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, your Savior is eternal God. It's not just the New Testament that teaches that. The Old Testament teaches that as well. For example, Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says, You, Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. In other words, Jesus is eternal. The Messiah is eternal. Jesus is rich in who he is. Jehovah's Witnesses and other cults will tell us that Jesus is not God. He's a great man, great prophet, but he's not God. The Bible very clearly says that he is God. By the way, if he's not God, we're still dead in our sins, but he is God. He is rich in who he is. He is as much God as the Father is God. He is as much God as the Holy Spirit is God. Divine names are ascribed to him in Scripture. He possesses all of the divine attributes. As I said earlier, the Bible also tells us that, that he is the one who created all things. John 1, 3 says, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. The Bible tells us that Jesus sustains all things. Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, nothing, nothing is outside of his control. This is why Paul can say in Colossians 2 verse 9, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. This isn't just something for a, a theology textbook. This isn't just something for the erudite theologians to discuss and banter about. This is who Jesus is. And, and this should make us stand 
in, in awe of him. Eternal God, creator, sustainer, Lord of all. He is rich in his being. Do you stand in awe of Jesus? Yes, he loves you. Yes, he calls you his friend. Yes, he has redeemed you. Yes, he has given his life for you. But, but we as Christians must stand in awe of him and understand his greatness and his majesty. He is rich in his being. He's also rich in his possessions. What, what I mean by that is everything belongs to him. Deuteronomy 10 verse 14 says, To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Psalm 50, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. Colossians 1, one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All creation is his. Everything. Things in heaven, things on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, everything. Children, think about that. All of the animals belong to King Jesus. All of the oceans, all of the seas, all of the rivers, all of the lakes, all of the mountains, all of the stars, all of the planets... It's estimated, by the way, that the Milky Way contains between 200 and 400 billion stars and at least 100 billion planets. All of it belongs to him. It's it's no understatement to say that, that we cannot even remotely comprehend how rich the Lord Jesus is. He is rich in his being. He is rich in his possessions. And yet Paul goes on and he tells us about the poverty of Jesus. He says that Jesus became poor. Now Jesus' riches didn't have a beginning. That there was never a time when the Lord Jesus wasn't rich. You, you read stories about these these self-made millionaires, they grew up with nothing, they had nothing, and they, through their own hard work and through the providence of God, they, they became very, very wealthy. That's not true with Jesus. There never was a time when he was not rich. But his poverty had a beginning. There was a point in time in, in which Jesus became poor. And that's really the story of Christmas, isn't it? Jesus became poor in his incarnation. When when Jesus entered the womb of Mary and, and was born into this fallen, messed up world, he became poor. 
Now, it's important to understand that, that becoming poor doesn't mean that Jesus stopped being God. There's some people who think that, that when Jesus came to this earth, he, he kind of set his deity aside, and, and he was just this, this human being. He was just a poor human being like us. But that's not true. When, when he became poor, it, it doesn't mean he stopped being God. John Murray, who was a, a great 20th century Presbyterian theologian, he said this, he said, when Jesus became a man, he did not cease to be rich in his divine being. He did not become poor by ceasing to be who he was, but he became poor by becoming what he was not. He became poor by addition, not by subtraction. He added manhood to his immutable and eternal Godhead. He added to his person real human nature with all its sinless properties and necessary infirmities. He was made in the likeness of men. Now this is something that we usually hear in December. We hear this at Christmas time. And again, maybe because we hear it so often and we preachers just kind of say the same thing every Christmas, we hear it so often that it becomes rather commonplace for us. Oh yeah, Jesus became a man. But, but I think we need to recapture the wonder of this. We need to recapture our amazement at this. It is, a, it is a wonder that the eternal Son of God, the creator of everything, the sustainer of all, that he took on our human weakness and limitation. I mean, he was born in the most humble of circumstances. He had to learn how to talk and how to walk. He had to learn how to read. He became hungry. He became thirsty. He became tired. He cried. Just, just think of some of the things that he endured during his earthly ministry. R right after his birth, and he was born in a barn, not in a palace, in a barn, he went on the run because a madman wanted to kill him. He was raised in Nazareth, and, and you all know what they said about Nazareth. Can anything good come out of that hick city, hick town? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. It was a nothing town. It was unfit for the God of the universe. One time, Jesus is preaching in Nazareth, and, and the people get so angry with him that, that they, they drive him out of the town and try and push him off a cliff. Preachers might do well to, to know that at least they don't have people trying to throw him off a cliff. And yet that's what happened to Jesus. Right, right after his baptism, he, he spends 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. He had a reputation, didn't he, of hanging out with lowlifes hanging out with sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. He was slandered by people. He was called a glutton. He was called a drunkard. Some people even said, remember this, that he was demon-possessed. You think you've endured a lot? At one point, even his own family thought he was crazy. He was insane. There, there are places in the Gospels that, that testify to the, the nomadic life that Jesus lived. Matthew 8 he said, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He had no home. In John 8, we, we read, they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. He didn't have a home. 
Near the end of his life, he was, he was betrayed. He was sold out by one of his disciples. He was unjustly accused. He was sentenced to death in the most inhumane form, death by crucifixion. The other 11 disciples ran away and abandoned him. He was given a severe beating with a whip containing pieces of bone, pieces of metal driven into his back. Stripped naked, crown of thorns pressed into his skull. He was mocked. He was spit upon. They slapped him. They punched him in the face. Nails were driven through his hands and through his feet. And while he was on the cross, the rejection and, and the abandonment of his father was so great that, that you remember what he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I said to you earlier, we cannot even remotely imagine how rich Jesus is. But we also cannot even remotely imagine how poor he became and all that he suffered. And, and it begs the question, Why? Why would he who is rich become poor? Why would the eternal Son of God, rich in his being, rich in his possessions, king over all, why would he go through that? Well, that's the third thing Paul wants to talk about, and that's the riches of the believer. Notice what he says in verse 9. He says, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. I have those three words in all capitals in my notes. If you like to underline in your Bible, you can underline it, for your sake. For your sake, he did that. Christian, it was for you that he endured these things. They have to remember to whom Paul is writing here. <laughs> He's not writing to the super Christians. He's not writing to the, the superstar level believers. He's writing to the church in Corinth. You know the church in Corinth. They were messed up. They had a lot of issues, a lot of struggles, a lot of difficulties. And yet, isn't it amazing that, that to this weak, struggling, immature group of Christians, Paul says, the Lord Jesus did this for you. Sometimes you think you're not worthy. Sometimes you think that you've gone too far, God could never love you, save you. Underline those words. For your sake. Paul says in Romans 5, at the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He doesn't say while we were those who had turned over a new leaf, while we were those who really made a good effort to better ourselves. No, while we were sinners, Jesus died for us. You can look at this one verse and you can know that Jesus did this for you. 
He came from the glories of heaven to the poverty of this earth. He took on a truly human nature. He endured all the suffering, all of the rejection, all of the hatred, all of the mockery, all of the beatings, the crucifixion, and he did it for us. Bernard of Clairvaux wrote in the 12th century, and it's still true today, what thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinners gain. He did this for us. He did this so that you and I might become rich. Not rich in the stuff of the world, but rich in the stuff of heaven. Spiritually rich. In fact, one of my favorite passages in in all of the Bible is Ephesians chapter 1. If you have your Bible, take, take it and just turn there for a moment. Ephesians chapter 1. Years ago, when I was um, licensed to preach in the URC, we had to, we had to submit a sermon for evaluation. And I, I wrote a sermon on this passage, and I got shredded for it. Um, I told you a few weeks ago, asked me a story about my first sermon. This was not my first sermon. My first sermon was probably worse. But um, I got shredded for this sermon because I had nine points. And the, and the guy who examined me and, and went over my sermon said, you know, never preach a nine-point sermon. I'm not going to give you nine points right now. But I do, I do want to read this for you because it is an amazing passage. Um, pa- Paul is just, he's thinking about the, the blessings he has. He's thinking about his spiritual riches. And he, he can't stop talking. You ever meet people before who just can't stop talking? And, and, the, and the, the, the translators in English, they, they add all these commas and all these periods in these verses, but they're not there in the original language. It's like Paul starts talking and he just can't stop. So look at verse 3. This is, this is one long run-on sentence in the original language. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. One sentence. Now, there's two ways you can read this. You you can read this, first of all, as a theologian. And you can say, 
Here's where Paul talks about election. And here's where Paul talks about redemption. And here's where Paul talks about forgiveness. And here's where Paul talks about the Holy Spirit. And you can outline all of that according to Reformed or systematic theology. But there's another way to read this. And it is to read it as a normal Christian who stands amazed that God would do this for you. That he would choose you, that he would redeem you, that he would forgive you, and that he would keep you secure. Brothers and sisters, this is what we have. This is what Christ has done for us. And, and this, should, this should affect the way we live our lives. This should affect how we deal with people in the world. We have the, the greatest treasure, the greatest message. And as such, we should have the greatest joy and the greatest comfort. Jesus Christ is rich, but for our sake, he became poor. So that the blessings that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 1 might be ours. Let me ask you a question as we close. How would you finish this sentence? The greatest thing in the world would be what? A lot of people would say rich. The greatest thing in the world is to know that every material need that I have would be met. Other people might say that the greatest thing in the world would be to be famous, to be known, to have accolades, to have honors, to have the applause of the world. Others might say the greatest thing in the world would be to be famous, or powerful rather, to, to, be, a, to be a person of great influence, to, to be a person that, that people look to to make a difference in the world. I would suggest to you, of course, that, that none of those are the right answer. That the right answer is the greatest thing in the world is to be right with God. Tonight, our passage points us to the fact that, that Jesus came, he loves us so much that he came to this earth so that we would be right with God. We may not be rich, we may not be famous, we may not be powerful, but by the grace of God and by the work of the Lord Jesus, we are right with God. And, and I can tell you, and, and I know you know this, that there is no greater thing in the world than to be right with God. My prayer is that by God's grace, you would never lose your sense of, of wonder, amazement that, that he who was rich became poor for me so that by his poverty, I might be rich. Let's pray. Father, such a simple verse, and yet so 
full of meaning, so full of comfort for us as Christians. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior. We thank you for what he voluntarily endured so that we might be spiritually rich. Lord, help us never to lose our sense of wonder at the reality of this and that by your grace we are right with you. Help us, Lord, to take this message into our communities. Help us to live our lives in in light of this glorious truth. We thank you for your grace and we pray this in Jesus' name.